I'm going to start off by saying that Kyle, um, he came over to my house, looked at every single note that I had, and took him down to his, because he has <laughs> me shook this podcast, yeah, I swear. Welcome to the Coast to Coast Podcast. We are back here with episode 14. I'm your host, Kyle Creasy, and I'm here with my co-host, Tommy Smith. And we're here today with a really good friend of mine that I've been able to meet. Probably, I probably met probably met him, shoot, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, if something like that. And uh, his name is Joel Harrison. Um, Joel is currently an assistant win- women's basketball coach and recruiting, and is the recruiting coordinator at West Florida in Pensacola, Florida. Um, I met Joel the same way I met Chasen, if you guys listened last week, um, working uh, for Nike in basketball camps in the Nashville, Tennessee area. Um, Joel is not even from that area. I'm not either. And we both just happen to know people that are in that area and work those camps. And so it's just kind of funny how that worked out. Um, so Joel, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. Like you said, it's kind of ironic how that all came together. And uh, here we are all these years later. So excited to be on your show. Yeah, appreciate you coming on. Um, you know, I just want you to just, just to start out. Obviously, we're going to go into kind of your journey and your coaching career and kind of stuff like that. But I just want you to tell us maybe like a little bit about yourself and what you what all you do at West Florida. Yeah, so uh, like Kyle said, I'm Joel Harrison, assistant women's basketball coach at the University of West Florida. We're an NCAA D2 school. Uh, in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, I am the assistant coach and recruiting coordinator. So basically that's a fancy way of saying like, I'm the one that goes out and, you know, scouts the the players, like determines if they're a fit for our program or not. Um, And, you know, just recruit them and try to get them to come to our program. I just finished my first year. I moved here to Pensacola a year ago. I'm from Montgomery, Alabama originally. And um, I coached at Faulkner University, which is an NAI school in Montgomery, Alabama, my alma mater for the last four years. And I'm uh, excited to be in Pensacola and I love West Florida and uh, looking forward to uh, doing great things here. Awesome. So, you know, just, just going straight into your background with basketball, um, you know, where did your love of the game come from? So I started actually playing basketball when I was six, uh, you know, like most people in a rec league. My dad is actually retired military. So I actually played uh, my rec league ball on a military base. So played from age six to um, I want to say 12 until I was able to start playing, uh, you know, for my school team. And then obviously from there played JV um, and then, you know, played varsity through my senior year of high school. So. I've been been involved with the game uh, as far back as I can remember. Um, And, you know, obviously, you know, just starting out playing it. And obviously, you know, just as a basketball fan, you know, watching the NBA, watching college basketball throughout the years, like um, I think it's just one of those things that just kind of developed over time as you just are around the game, you grow a a love for the sport. Because, I mean, I'm biased, but to me it's the best sport on on planet Earth. But, um, you know, just through playing it all the years, I think it's where the, I can, I think just the love of the game came from. And, um, you know, just guys, real quick, two other things that I was able to really connect with Joel and why I think we're, you know, we may not talk all the time, but still I consider a good friend of mine and somebody I can hit up anytime is we were just really able to connect. And one thing we're going to talk about on this podcast after we go through kind of a lot of Joel's upbringing as a coach is Kobe Bryant. Uh, you know, me and Joel both, he was our favorite player. 
as well as what we're about to get into with Joel's journey getting into coaching was Joel started out, as you guys know, I'm a student assistant for our program at Maribel. Joel did what I do at Faulkner. So Joel, uh, just kind of go into it, you know, what made you want to do that going into college? Because a lot of people have asked me the same thing, like, you know, what was the interest in maybe doing that if you weren't going to play? Yeah, so um, obviously, you, you know the manager life because you're doing it. Um, I think as I look back on it, it's one of those things that like, I can honestly say looking back on it, I decided to be a manager at the time just to really stay involved with basketball. I didn't really know like to what capacity I wanted uh, to be involved, but I knew like my whole life I've known the game. So even though I'm not going to play in college and I knew that coming out of high school, I still want to be involved with the game somehow. So um, I actually started going to uh, Faulkner men's basketball summer camps from like age 11 to 18 to my senior year of high school. Which, which is um, curious because I'm pretty, I'm pretty similar in the sense that throughout all my kids' years, I was going to Maribel College. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so exact same scenario. Uh, went to the camps all those years and, get, you know, got to know the coaching staff. And then once, once I got old enough, uh, you know, to start, you know, making some decisions on colleges and stuff, um, I'll never forget the assistant coach at the time was like, hey, you know, we've, you know, started a relationship with you. We know you like we know, you know, you're not going to play college basketball. But, but if you want to be involved with our program, we've got a manager spot for you. Well, at the time, I didn't really know what that meant. And it's ironic because I never wanted to coach like my dad actually started uh, the basketball program at my high school. So, like, we had conversations as far as like when I was graduating high school, like, what I wanted to do career-wise. I didn't fully know. I knew I wanted to be involved with basketball to some capacity, but coaching was not it. Like I said the words, I will never coach. Like those words came out. So um, like I said, I went to be a manager and not really knowing what that was going to turn into, but I just locked in. And like, um, I think just from being around it every day, uh, from being around really strong coaches, uh, being in a strong you know, basketball program, uh, we were really good. We won two conference championships when I was there. Um, and I, th I think, I mean, obviously, you know, you're around it every day. Like, if you lock in, like, you can learn a lot. And I think once I started to really, like, you know, try to learn the game and obviously from really good coaches and at the college level, I think I just sparked an interest for, okay, I might, you know, have some interest in this coaching thing. And um, I went to college a little longer than most. But my third year, so it wasn't quite my junior year, but my third year, um, so it was after my third year, going into my fourth year, we actually went through a coaching change. And through that coaching change, um, so the head coach, like this, this happened super late. So we went through the coaching change like in October. So it was right before we were about to start like official practice. And then our assistant coach at the time, he was brand new as well. So literally both of those guys were brand new to the university, don't really know much of anybody, don't really know the program, don't know the league. So like at that time, I had been a manager for three years already. So I I knew the school, I knew the players, I knew the program, you know, I knew the success that we had. So I uh, kind of developed a relationship with the new coach off the bat because I was kind of the one that had been around, you know, knew how things ran. And he really relied on me to like tell him about players, tell him about, you know, things that we did previously, you know, tell him, you know, administration and, you know, who to, you know, hit up for academics or, you know, monetary reasons or whatever. So we just kind of formed a relationship really off the bat. And I think looking back on it, that really formed that trust um, up front because once he figured out that, hey, I 
you know, was diligent. I was a hard worker. And ironically, his older brother was the coach that he replaced. So he had that, you know, word of mouth from his older brother that said, like, you know, hey, Joel did a great job for me for three years. You know, he's you know a good manager, going to work hard, this and that. So um, and that just kind of took off. And like I said, once we kind of built that trust, um, it got to the point to where as a manager, I mean, I was helping with some film stuff like uh, they were letting me help out a little bit with some scouting reports like I was helping out with some recruiting stuff. So once that happened, that's where the interest really kind of peaked. And um, I was like, you know, once I determined I wanted to do this, I really locked in and, uh, you know, wanted to make a career out of it. And I'll never forget, like I sat by our head coach, you know, every game, uh, you know, from my last three years. And I mean, there was plenty of times where he turned to me and asked me strategy questions and, you know, defensive coverages and stuff like that. And I'm looking at him like he's crazy because I'm like 20, 21 years old at the time. But I mean, that just showed me that, you know, that trust that he had, you know, built in me and I really appreciated that. And that's really what kind of sparked my interest in the uh, the coaching world after, as I said, obviously it was something I would never do. So um, it's pretty ironic. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, and then obviously, you know, just me knowing you, um, when you finished your time in school, uh, you ended up being an assistant coach for the women's program. And you were there for some time, like you've mentioned. And, you know, I just wanted to ask you from like a perspective question, how would you describe the NAIA to people who aren't very informed on that level of collegiate athletics? Yes. So before I get into that question, I will say another ironic thing about my coaching career. I said I would never coach and I started and I ended up coaching. I said I would never coach girls and I love coaching women's basketball. (laughs) So two things I said I would never do. I'm doing it. And uh, I enjoyed every bit of it. Um, Like I said, I started out in men's basketball was hired as a GA for one year on the women's side, and then it was assistant for the last three. And obviously I'm at West Florida now, and I love every minute of it. But it's just ironic how that kind of all happened. But NAI basketball, like, I mean, I some of the best players I've seen with my two eyes have been at the NAI level. Like, you know, I mentioned when I was on the men's side, we were fortunate enough to win two conference championships, and we made it to the NAI national tournament twice. So, I mean, you're out there. And for people that don't know, like, then now it's it's since changed, but the original format back when I went was you've got the top 32 teams in one gym, and you have to win, I believe it's like five games in seven days to be crowned national champion, which is nuts. Like, the NAI tournament used to be a gauntlet, but it was really cool because you see the top 32 teams in the country all in one spot. So, obviously, when you're not playing and prepping for your own games, you know, our hotel was right across the street from the gym. So we'd go watch, you know, teams from all over the country. And, uh, you know, there's – people don't realize, like, at the NAI level, there's Division One transfers on NAI rosters. Like, there's high-level professional caliber players on NAI rosters. And, like, I mean, I think – and, you know, you being at a D3 know as well, like, there's talented players at every level. Like, it doesn't matter. College basketball is college basketball. All these guys and girls are recruited. I mean, they're all good players, obviously some better than others, but for the most part, there's talent at every level. So um, I, I wish NAI basketball is something that people would really give more of a shot and look more into because it is great basketball. And like my entire career up to this point has been in the NAIA and I loved every second of it. Like, um, cause, because I know like every, all the success that we had, we earned and we beat some really good teams doing it. And we had a lot of good players 
on our team and a couple of them are playing professionally now. So, um, and a couple that didn't could have and just chose not to for whatever reason. So uh, I always will respect and love the NAI level. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just wanted you to open up on that just because I know that there are people that kind of have this negative connotation on the NAI or just other levels of that's brand of basketball. That's not division one. Um, and then, you know, you ended up at West Florida. This has been your first year. I, I just wanted to ask, you know, what made you make the change and how was year one? Another crazy story. So coming off of the COVID season, so the 2020 and 2021 season, um, you know, I was at Faulkner. That was the craziest year of all of our basketball careers. Um, so many game cancellations, players in and out of the lineup. You know, any type of adversity you can be hit with, we were probably all hit with it in that year. And um, in my mind, like, you know, I knew the the team that we had returning. We had all of our best players. We had two All-Americans returning that following year. Uh, we had what we felt like was a really strong recruiting class. And we felt like we had a team that was prepared to, you know, make a run, you know, bearing, you know, health and, um, you know, just that sort of thing. So in my mind, like, I was locked in and ready to go and try to go win a championship at Faulkner. Like I wasn't even really thinking along the lines of kind of making a move, but um, it was just kind of one of those things. Like my head coach at Faulkner knew the head coach here at West Florida. And uh, he was doing some, just some online searching and uh, noticed that um, the assistant that was here prior to me uh, was not listed on their website site anymore. So he did some digging, found out that, uh, you know, the head coach was looking for an assistant. Um, and then he recommended me to her. And then I had actually met her previously, like at a couple of recruiting events. So like she, we didn't, I didn't know her like extremely well, but she knew who I was. And ironically, like she had me on her short list to contact. So through like that connection and his recommendation, that's how that came about. And um, it was just the craziest thing ever. She calls me up, uh, you know, tells me about the job. Um, I do a phone interview. And then I think like a week and a half later, I accept, like was offered the job and accepted it. So it was one of those things It came out of complete nowhere. Like I wasn't really searching out anything. It was just, I knew the right people at the right time and was blessed with a great opportunity. And uh, I took it. Obviously, it's an NCAA Division II school and an extremely tough conference with a very successful head coach, um, successful athletic department. I mean, we got a lot going for us here at West Florida. Uh, Pensacola is a great city. You know, I live 20 minutes from the beach, so that's nice. So uh, it's just one of those things is, you know, right place at the right time. And I knew the right people. And uh, good, good year one. Yeah, great year. Yeah, from my understanding, a really good year one. Great year one. So uh, another crazy thing is so like um, so UWF women's basketball actually made it to the Elite Eight in the 2017-18 season. So um, all their top players on those teams were like seniors. So they graduated. So the two years after that were kind of rebuilding years. They were really young, had a lot of new players and things just didn't really click. And they had a lot of injury issues to like key players. So it was just kind of one of those things to where, like, the two years after that, anything bad that could happen, whether it be injuries or whatever, probably happened. So their records weren't great. So they went from an Elite Eight to seven wins to nine wins. 
And then obviously I get the job uh, last March. And I mean, I, the, I did my research on the situation. Like I looked at the program and knew like, okay, this program is better than nine wins because I did my research. Like I knew they had the resources. It's just, it was just a rough patch. Yeah. But I was like, we, we've got the talent in like the coaching staff and, you know, we've got the resources to turn this thing around and we can do this quickly. We just have to add, you know, the right piece here, right piece there, and we're going to be fine. So I get the job. Uh, my first uh, commitment, ironically, um, as the assistant at uh, UWF, was who turned out to be our first team all-conference player. And I think she got shafted from being All-American. She averaged 17 points and 13 rebounds a game. Wow. She was top five in the country in double-doubles. Um, had a couple 20-point, 20-rebound games. But she was a Division One transfer and was amazing. We had the freshman of the year on our, on our team. Uh, she's a post player from uh, Tennessee. And then uh, we had a Division One transfer point guard. So those were, uh, like, I guess, kind of my first like wave recruiting class to add of the core that they had returning. And we just had players that locked in and, you know, played extremely hard and were ready to compete. And so we went from nine wins to 19 wins. So we were 19 and eight, uh, finished in fourth place in our league. We were a half game outside of third. And, uh, you know, a 10-game turnaround is uh, never a bad thing. Uh, unfortunately, we lost first round of our conference tournament, but um, we're, we're going to fix that uh, this upcoming year for sure. Yeah, awesome, awesome. You know, I mean, I stayed in touch with you and was able to, you know, we were talking about our seasons at some point. And I, was, I was happy for you, man. But, um, you know, I'm glad to introduce you on the pod. Just wanted our people to get some kind of background info on you, figure out you, what you do, what all you've done growing up. But um, obviously, with this being an NBA pod, we got some NBA topics to talk about. Sure. Let's do it. So, uh, you know, sorry, guys. Tommy is here, I promise. We just, I just wanted to introduce Joel and, and go through all that. But um, so Tommy, Tommy is definitely here. But let's get to it, man. First, long-awaited, you know, especially the guys that know me, Kobe Bryant, favorite player ever. But we've not really talked about Kobe on this podcast yet. Well, you know, I knew at some point I wanted to talk about Kobe Bryant. And in my mind, not a more perfect time than whenever I could finally get Joel on here. So, you know, me and Joel have been talking for probably a few months now about whenever I could potentially have him on here. But we we're finally able to make it happen. So, you know, finally getting some Kobe stuff here. And, and you know, I forgot to mention this at the beginning. We told you guys last week we would give you more in-depth final stuff. And that is coming at the, after the Kobe stuff here. So, first, just going straight into Kobe Bryant, just kind of like all things Kobe. Um, like I said, this was a way that me and Joel were able to really connect whenever we first met, just both being guys that absolutely loved Kobe, favorite player, that kind of thing. And I just want to start out with this just to kind of – I don't want to say necessarily get it out of the way, but just to kind of be able to keep it positive after everything else. You know, sadly, we did lose Kobe Bryant in, in 2020. And, um, you know, very, very tragic thing to – I know myself and Joel and all kinds of others – but, um, you know, I just, just wanted to say, you know, never – don't want to ever take any of that for granted because of what those families are still, you know, going through. So – but people like us also want to be able to even take that and give stories about how he was able to influence us or even just be like a positive, like, role model for us to look towards in a sense. And so I just wanted to get that out of the way first. 
But um, Joel, I want to ask you, what is your first memory of Kobe Bryant as a player from when you were younger? Yeah, so uh, it's crazy because the time when I just started, you know, being old enough to actually, you know, realize what's going on in basketball, uh, you know, I was like five or six. But um, during that time was during the uh, the three-peat in the early 2000s. So the Lakers were all everything at that point. So, uh, you know, like any young kid, you're going to, of course, watch who's, you know, doing well and winning at that time. Um, and it just so happened to be, you know, Kobe, Shaq, the Lakers, you know, going through a three-peat in the early 2000s. And um, just for whatever reason, like, I just grew an interest in Kobe. And obviously, he was a great player, phenomenal player, all-time player. But I just grew an interest in Kobe and just really, you know, gravitated towards the way he played, um, his approach, um, you know, his aggression towards the game, just you know, his demeanor uh, during the game. And, you know, just to kind of watch his career from, uh, you know, the quote unquote, the ball hog days of the early Kobe, the arrogant Kobe to, uh, you know, the end of his career. And obviously what he was doing post, you know, career uh, until he unfortunately passed. Like um, it was just it's just amazing to see the things that he was able to accomplish, like his will to win and his will to uh, just do literally anything that um he set his mind to was amazing and I just kind of gravitated towards that so uh the early memories I mean I can remember like um in that Western Conference Finals when they're playing the Sacramento Kings the Robert Ory like buzzer beater like I was in my living room with my parents like watching that game like um I remember the um it was the Western Conference Finals against the uh, Portland Trailblazers when Kobe drives down the middle throws a lob to Shaq Shaq dunks it and the Staples Center goes crazy like I remember watching all those games live, you know, and just, um, you know, obviously, you know, being a Kobe fan and just being a Laker fan because they were so good and just kind of following them, you know, throughout the rest of time. Like, even when the Lakers were terrible, you know, after Shaq got traded away and stuff like that, like, Kobe's always been my guy. So uh, those are the early memories that I uh, remember. And it's just kind of, you know, crazy to see how things unfolded, uh, uh, you know, throughout the rest of his career. Yeah, my – my earliest memory of Kobe that I think I can recall, I, I, I remember watching him uh, play the Magic in the finals. But to me, I think the moment that I can really picture whenever I was watching it was like him holding up five after they beat Boston yeah. in 2010 and watching that series, not really having a clue what was going on. I was nine, ten years old. But just like – being tuned into the game and he made a shot, just going crazy because he was my favorite player and just seeing him hold up five. Um, and, you know, now just, you know, we went for your, from your earliest memories. Now what are two or three of your favorite Kobe Bryant memories? Uh, I mean, off the, off the top, you got to go to 81 point game. I mean, I've watched that game a million times. Like I think he, if I remember right, he only had like, I say only. He had like twenty six or so at halftime. So yeah, it like, wasn't. It wasn't like in the first half he was on pace for the eighty one point. Yeah, like he went. He scored like fifty something points in a half. Like that's insane. And like I've that game was not actually aired live, but like obviously when the game released and I went back and watched it, like that's one of the craziest things I've ever seen. And um, I mean, even to hear the Raptors players talk about it now, like Jalen Rose says it all the time, like. 
I mean, we're double, you know, we were blitzing this guy, you know, we're playing one on five, we're switching up, you know, defensive coverages, like nothing is working. He literally was going one on five and was like willing his team to a victory. So that was amazing. I don't know if we'll ever see anything like that again. We've seen some things close, like, you know, the Clay Thompson uh, performance a couple years ago when he went crazy in the half. Obviously, Steph has done his thing, you know, LeBron, KD, those guys have had their times, but 81 points, that's a lot of buckets. So, That's a, that's a lot of buckets. So, um, obviously, that was amazing. Um, obviously, his final game of his career against Utah, that game was yeah. insane. And it's crazy because uh, I was actually supposed to be doing homework that night, but <laughs> I was like, there were two big games going on at the same time. There was Kobe's last game in the Staples Center against Utah, and then Warriors. that was the yeah. Warriors 73 uh, win game. They were going on at the same time. So, of course, I'm flipping back and forth because both games were historic. Yeah. And Kobe actually started out pretty slow in that game. Uh-huh. See, I, 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 didn't, I didn't tune into the Warriors game at all. I was just only on the Laker game. Yeah, yeah. Like, Kobe started out slow, airballed a couple shots, you know, looked kind of rusty, whatever, and then that switch just flipped. And it was nuts. I mean, and he, the Lakers were actually down that game. And once again – you know, willed his team to a victory, uh, you know, puts up 61 in his final game. And, I mean, just just crazy. I mean, you could tell how gassed he was at the end of the game. But, uh, I mean, just to watch that type of performance is nuts. Uh, obviously, when he tears his Achilles against the um, – I think it was the New Orleans Hornets at the time and walks up to the free throw line. It was the Warriors. Yeah, you might be right. Yeah, Warriors. Yeah, you're right. Um, walks up to the free throw line on a torn Achilles with tears in his eyes, sinks two free throws, and walks off the floor. I'm just like, this dude is a different breed, man. Like, you know, that's crazy. And then just to see, like, the, all the injuries he actually played through. I mean, you see guys in the NBA right now sitting for these quote-unquote rest days. It's like Kobe was playing with broken fingers in the finals, like, you know, made two free throws on a torn Achilles, like had, you know, the labor issues in his shoulder and just, just his – will i mean i say that a lot but just his will to you know compete at the highest level and you know to go win games and championships is unmatched and then um so those those are probably some of the biggest ones and obviously there's you know others sprinkled in between but as, as i think kobe's career those are i guess a few of the biggest ones that kind of probably stick out in my head yeah uh definitely great ones tommy what kind of jumps out as you as some of your favorite kobe memories my favorite Kobe memory is actually my first Kobe memory. It was, I was like six years old, and my brother was wa- like watching the playoffs, and um, it was against the Suns. It was against the Suns. He had a game winner, um, and uh, they ended up losing the series. But that was my first really memory of Kobe Bryant, and it's my favorite because I was like, wow. And I knew that was my dad's favorite player. Well, I didn't know at the time because I was six years old, but like I figured out later that was my dad's favorite player. And just like moments like that is exactly why. Yeah, that that was the game where he uh, pulled his jersey uh, off the side of his chest and like showed his, that, that was one of my favorite performances. I actually forgot about that one, but that one was a really good one. That was against Phoenix. That, that is probably my favorite uh, Kobe game winner. It's not necessarily the most impressive, but I think just like his reaction afterwards, like you could tell how much like that meant to him to like get that win. Um, my favorite Kobe memories, Kobe memories are one really isn't probably all that crazy. It's just because I just remember 
you know, me being on the East Coast, I couldn't have had a more unfortunate favorite players in the sense of watching them because Kobe Bryant is my favorite player ever, and Kawhi Leonard is my favorite player now. So I'm just stuck watching L.A. guys that play at 1030 my time. And so I was probably in like sixth, seventh grade and stayed up one night and uh, it was an L.A. battle and the Lakers were playing the Clippers. And one of the first plays of the game, Kobe gets a steal and has a fast break and dunks all over Chris Paul. And I was like going nuts and I get a text from my parents telling me to shut up because they were trying to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and then um and then obviously like Joel said just his last game I mean it was just so special it was yeah. like it was you, you can't you just can't replicate something like that so for me that was every time he was yeah every time that game he was at the free, free throw line I just smiled and yeah like it was awesome man um so yeah like just so many memories to choose from for all different kinds of people it honestly differs no matter what because there's so many but I uh, just wanted to share some of those and hear, hear Joel's especially. And, uh, you know, next question, just because it's a bunch of Kobe questions. Joel, what's your favorite Kobe shoe? So my favorite Kobe shoe is the Kobe 6. Now, I never actually owned a pair, and I'm still trying to track a pair down. But obviously, since it's passing, it's close to impossible to get Kobe's yeah. right now. But my favorite one that I actually owned was actually the Kobe 9. The low, the low version. Yeah, I had a few pairs of those, and those were extremely comfortable. That's actually the first Kobe that I ever owned, and I love those things. They were extremely comfortable. But the Kobe Six is uh, my my favorite model. I unfortunately never had it. The the Six is mine as well. Uh, I had a few pairs when I was younger, and about about a year and a half ago, I got the very first pair I ever had, which was a pair of Sixes, and. Um, yeah, that those had to be my favorite. I, if I could buy every pair of sixes, I would. But um, obviously, that's a very hard. Um, Tommy, what's your favorite Kobe shoe? So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with Joe here. I'm gonna get favorite pair I've owned is the Zoom Fives. Like I'm not gonna go with the same thing as him, but I'm gonna go with the same model. But like the just the classic feeling. My favorite, like my favorite ever, was when he was with Adidas, and it was the KB8s. Oh. Hmm. Yeah, okay. just that feeling like I was I was young. And I was like, oh, my goodness, those look so cool. So, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, I've, you know, those answers definitely differ as well. I feel like the sixes, honestly, since he retired, have became a ton more popular. Yeah, for sure. I don't, know, I don't know what it is. Like, you see them in the league all the time, like, compared to other Kobe models. Um, but, yeah, the sixes are definitely super popular. But, um, you know, now I want to ask, Joel, which championship of his five was your favorite? I think the fifth one. Um, and I think the reason why is, like, um, off the top, just the Lakers-Celtics rivalry. I mean, just as a basketball fan, you guys know how big of a deal that is. And um, the way we got smacked in 08, <laughs> just to get that revenge, you know, on the big three in Boston and as good of a team they were, you know, to win that game seven, you know, at home in the Staples Center. Um, obviously, Ron Artest uh, hit a metal world piece. Ron Artest hit a huge uh, three down the stretch there to, you know, help clinch that game. But I think the fifth one, just because, like, like I said, just the Lakers-Celtics rivalry, um, how tough of a series that actually was, um, and just to continue to prove, you know, that he could still do it. Because, I mean, you guys know, like, when Shaq was traded, People thought the Lakers were done for. And then obviously, you know, 
the, the Pau Gasol series. So, but if you remember in 08, um, Pau Gasol was dealing with some injury, injury uh, issues. Andrew Bynum was out that series. Um, so they were, you know, switching guys around. Pau Gasol was having to play the five um, and they weren't at full strength. So just to kind of get that revenge, and you said it earlier, and it's one of my favorite just basketball images of all time. Watching, and it's actually the background of my phone, uh, the confetti falling down, Kobe with the championship hat on and holding up that five, like that is an iconic moment. And uh, it's one of my favorites of all time. So I'll definitely say the fifth one was uh, my favorite. Yeah, for me, I think it's five. And it's just because obviously kind of like what you were going off of, like winning without Shaq which he'd done the year before. But I think to some people it was like the Celtics had beaten them the year before and then Kevin Garnett got hurt that year. Yeah. And so it was kind of like, you know, I mean, I was nine, so I don't remember totally, but I mean, you hear, I see stuff and hear it heard from people, watch videos, whatever, hear from people that were like covering the league around then. It's almost like the feel that year was like, well, the Lakers got it this year because Kevin Garnett got hurt. Like we saw what happened last year. And then for them to be able to play the next year and go into that and he was able to kind of like get that revenge and like title five is a big deal like like forget winning without Shaq like he had kind of done it at that point but like title five is a huge deal like anytime you go up in numbers even the difference between zero to one one to two it's just that difference right there even but five specifically awesome for sure, and I'm, I don't know if you guys remember, because it it's funny to hear you say, like, oh, nine, you were, like, nine years old, because I was in high school, so you make me feel old. But with that fifth championship, you know, there was talks about, you know, some of the guys in the league at the time that had been with, you know, the same franchise for their entire career, the Dirk Nowitzkis, Tim Duncans of the world. And, uh, you know, at the time, Tim Duncan had already won his fourth ring, and, you know, he and Kobe were tied. So, obviously, that fifth one separated him from that and just obviously with the pursuit of, you know, chasing that sixth ring to, you know, match Jordan, uh, you know, he fell one short, but that fifth one was huge and, uh, you know, ended up being his last one. But I think he even said in, in some interviews, that was, you know, his most satisfying, just the storyline being Boston, you know, how tough it was and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, th I think a lot of people would agree with us that that one was probably their favorite. Um, Tommy, I have a different one. You know, okay. you know that I was a Cavaliers fan when I was, a, I was, a, or I was a LeBron James fan. So I didn't really go for the Lakers much. But however, I did go for the Lakers one year in the finals. It was the 2009 finals, and it was because I was very, very upset. Uh, it's because <laughs> the Magic beat the Cavs, knocked the Cavs out. Um, I, I just, I just wanted one for LeBron that year. So um, I'm gonna go with the 2009 finals. They, they whooped the magic too <laughs> they did um you know the next question i have is definitely a very controversial one depending on who you ask and uh you know i i have my reasons as to why i may rank him somewhere other people may have their reasons why they rank him elsewhere but i just want to ask where do you personally rank kobe bryant all time like you said very controversial uh but I, I rank him second behind Jordan and above LeBron, and I'll explain why. Because to me, the argument that everybody's going to make with LeBron, and you can't argue, stats are crazy. His impact on the game is crazy. I agree with all that. I've seen LeBron's entire career. 
Um, I remember his watching his high school games on ESPN, you know, getting drafted number one, and I've seen it all the way up to now. I get all that. But to me, the thing that separates Jordan and Kobe from everybody else is their mindset and just their will to do absolutely anything that they decide they want to do. They found ways to do it. Um, I think Kobe is, you know, closer to Jordan probably than anybody in NBA history. Um, a, obviously, because he modeled his game after him, but B, just his mindset and approach is probably the closest to Jordan as we've ever seen since Jordan, which is why I kind of put, you know, Jordan being like the original, I guess, if you want to say as one, Kobe kind of, as Jalen Rose says, it, Kobe being the remix is number two, and then, um, you know, uh, LeBron being three. But, I mean, we can argue this for the rest of time. But um, I, I, I just think, I think Kobe's desire, will, and just approach to the game separates him from the pack. So I'll go Jordan one, Kobe two, LeBron three. Tommy, where do you have Kobe all time? So I have uh, I have Kobe at three, um, and this and this argument, I mean this this is never going to be ended because people think different ways. Well, to a certain, right. sorry to cut you off, but like to a certain degree with some of these players at the top, you're really splitting hairs. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and it's like, it almost becomes like personal preference. Like what you, what do you want from a player right there? That's how like, that's how good they are. But uh, I have them at three. I'm not going to give my top two. That's uh, might get a little bit of people, or <laughs> some, some, uh, some one person riled up. So I'm not going to give my top two. Um, I, but, I like your, I like your answer there. Cause I guess I'm giving my first spoiler here. We do have some fun off season stuff coming for you guys. And once everything is done, we will, we will give you guys, I haven't figured out the number yet. I think I'm going to decide on 50. We're going to give you some kind of all time list for our personal preference. So the first spoiler and no context applied is I have Kobe Bryant top three. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Um, but I do want to ask, do you guys think that Kobe gets too much hate from certain people or media who make all-time lists? Absolutely. Um, I think as great as Kobe is, I think he's probably one of the more overlooked and more slandered players of, of NBA history. Um, I think Kobe is one of those players that could play in any era. His skill set translates to every era of basketball. Um, and it's it's one of those things, especially now, unfortunately, that he's passed, just kind of the out of sight, out of mind uh, mindset, I think. like, And it's unfortunate that, obviously, and I mean, you know, we were the same way. Like, I, I was too young to see Jordan in his prime. So, like, I don't really have an appreciation for that as it was happening. Obviously, you know, just as a basketball fan, I've caught up on that on the back end. But um, I, I think because Kobe is so close to Jordan, I think he kind of gets overlooked because of some of that. But uh, you can make an argument that there's a lot of things that Kobe was actually stronger at than Jordan. And like before the world goes crazy, I say that just to say, like, just a skill set. Jordan, like, was crazy athletic, could score, do all those things. But like the things that I think that, Kobe really gets overlooked for is Kobe was a better shooter. Um, I think he's a better shooter from distance. Yes, better shooter. I think his handle was better, just generally speaking. Um, you know, Kobe is a very underrated defender. Um, Kobe actually was a, a great defender. And I think Kobe doesn't get enough credit for the playmaker that he was. 
people always say like he was a ball hawk. He never passed. I mean, if you look at his assist numbers, like his assist numbers rank up there with some of the best to ever do it. So I know he's. Uh, I know he's. I know it's a. It's a total number, and I have not gotten into this too much on the podcast. But those that know me know that I'm not a big totals guy. I'm more average. But I don't think you can just shove it under the rug that Kobe Bryant is first all time in assists by a shooting guards. Yes, absolutely. Like, I mean, and I think I I agree with the argument of, you know, total versus average, because like obviously he he was not, you know, the LeBron that's gonna average eight assists a game and get his teammates involved in this and that, but that total number it doesn't shouldn't just go by the wayside like that. Yeah, yeah. like <laughs> that definitely happened. So um, it's unfortunate, and honestly, I don't know why he gets overlooked so much because he is one of the best to ever do it. But um, you know, I think it's I guess our job to I guess keep the memory alive and you know keep trying to tell people like, hey, this dude was was different <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, my my thought process in, on it is. I think it's two things. And I think one is he has one MVP and I've been on, I'm on record saying that I think it's kind of flawed to view players based on how many like regular season MVPs that they have just because I would rather look at, okay, how many seasons was that guy like a MVP caliber player opposed to did you win the MVP? Like, because especially nowadays, but even when he was playing then, I mean, it wasn't that long ago. Like, you've got so many guys that are playing at an MVP caliber level. Like, you can't just kind of – when it comes to all-time rankings, you're not going to be able to just say, oh, well, he only had one MVP. Like, like if you're going up against Duncan, Garnett, you know, LeBron, like all in the same year – you're not just going to end up with five MVPs. For sure. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, like at your at your peak anyway. Yeah. Right? Talking about at your peak. Like, I know he played 20 years, but, like, you know, I think he was a great player, and Shaq actually called him the best player on their championship team whenever they beat the Nets. But, like, whenever he got to go without Shaq, and then from that point until he hurt the Achilles, probably about a eight to 10-year span somewhere in there, when every year you're, you know, fighting all-time greats, you're like I said, you're not going to have five MVPs. And another thing is the finals MVP thing, and it's they're going to go to Shaq won all three finals MVPs. But, again, it's like Kobe – the first finals was different. It was his first finals, still super, 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 super young. But it's whatever. Like, you know, cool. He was still second-best player on that team. Maybe the final series itself wasn't that great overall, but still second-best player on the championship team. But then the next two, I mean, the guy was averaging dang near 30 points, if not over it, and they played against the likes of a Jason Kidd and an Allen Iverson in those finals, and he was their primary assignment. And while he was on them, did a very good job. Like, just because Shaq won the finals MVP, because he was putting up 34 and and 13 on a 38-year-old Dikembe Mutombo or a Keith Van Horn on Brooklyn, like – and that's no shade on Shaq. It's just like that's the way it's gonna go. <laughs> but I think I think the thing that people forget is like they'll sit here and like make slander towards Kobe because he didn't win those finals MVPs. 
But it's almost like you're downplaying how good Shaq was. No, like, for sure. Shaq was amazing. Like, and literally was averaging, like you said, 30 and, you know, however many rebounds. Like, I mean, it's it's tough to overcome that. I mean, it's just unfortunate that your teammate is so good. But, I mean, it's the same argument as the, uh, you know, the KD and Steph thing. Like, when they were on the, <laughs> the Warriors, I think Steph gets too much slander for that second championship with KD because if you look at Steph's numbers, his numbers were actually really good. It's just that Steph, Steph was really on pace to win that Finals MVP in 2018, but yes. it, was, it was like a really bad game three. Yes, he had one bad game, and I you could make an argument that that's the one that lost it. But like KD was unreal, so mm-hmm. like you can't really yeah. take anything away from you know Kobe. It's just because Shaq was that you know dominant during that time. So I think it's unfortunate, but. You know, I, I think the MVP is one of those things like, you know, it is important, but I think people kind of put almost too much stock in it. And it shouldn't be a career defining award, I think. And that's where I think we've kind of gotten to with it. But yeah, my, my thing on why I think it's more than justified as to why he is underrated is, you know, ask anyone who played against him. And not to say that I've asked them directly, but just all the clips you see or all the pieces you've seen written or a podcast from where somebody has somebody on, like ask anyone who played against him and they'll tell you he's up there with MJ and LeBron for sure. But then maybe some writer for a company over here and no shade to those guys, you know, like they know they, they do a great job in my opinion. I think they get a little slander too much too. Like we're talking about people getting slander, but like, it's just a different, and I'm not saying we should take a player's word, over somebody or that we should take because you see bad opinions on both sides all the time. Definitely. But when I see a player that's played against Jordan, LeBron and Kobe and tells me that Kobe Bryant is on the same level, I think it's more than fair to take their word for it. No, for sure. I mean, they're on the floor with the guy. I mean, it's, it's tough to argue somebody that saw it firsthand. I mean, you know, you're on the floor with them, you're guarding him, you're playing against them. Like, and especially, I mean, Kobe's one of those guys. I mean, all those guys were getting the best defender, you know, on the opposing team. But, I mean, when you've got all-time great defenders, you know, saying that Kobe was the toughest dude I ever had to deal with, I mean, to me, that that speaks for something. Tommy, do you think he gets kind of underrated in these conversations? Uh, yeah, definitely. And you guys brought up, like, really good points um, that I agree with as well. Like, so, yeah, he played like – or he – model this game like kind of like Michael Jordan but um what people don't see is he perfected literally everything he worked so hard so I bet like people say that he's like a mimic like copying cat but I mean if you're I mean just as good if not like better at some things like you said then I mean can't really say anything on my my end and I I do think another thing that kind of gets that people don't apply the context to is when I talk about these players and like, I think about like who are some of the greatest players, it's like at your, at your peak. And like that peak had to last a while. Like I'm not saying a one year peak, but like at your peak. And so when I'm evaluating Kobe Bryant compared to others, I'm not evaluating Kobe Bryant that didn't figure things out until year three or four or whatever, and Kobe Bryant post-Achilles injury. Like, I'm evaluating Kobe Bryant once he figured things out until that point basically where he tore his Achilles. So, like, I can't take numbers from Kobe Bryant from his whole career 
and like compare it to a guy that's still playing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It, it's not fair. <laughs> it's unrealistic. So, yeah, and then just just one last question about Kobe. Obviously, the era is not far from whenever he played in the sense of time, but play style is definitely a lot different. Do you think that Kobe would have excelled more in this style of play? Yes, and the reason why I say that is because in today's game, you couldn't touch him. So as effective as he was offensively back in that era where it was still a really physical game, now it's more of a finesse game. So, I mean, he has definitely the skill level and the scoring ability to thrive. So to me, his scoring numbers would probably go up as a result of that because that means more free throws, obviously more shot attempts. You know, just, you know, the popularity of the three ball right now is way more than it was, you know, during his time. Now, obviously, you know, people made the argument that he shot it too much at times, but now you can make that argument for half the league. So it's yeah. like what we're really talking about, like, I mean, James Harden is shooting, you know, double setbacks over, you know, two and three people. So, I mean, I, I think he would have more than excelled. I think uh, his numbers probably would have been even crazier if he played in today's league just because, like I said, you, you can't touch him. Yeah. Tommy? I definitely agree. Like, James Harden averaged them near 40 points – or dang near 40 points um, in that season. Just imagine what Kobe Bryant would, would, would have done. Yeah, and you know, and it's proud. I think yeah, I'm I'm 100 on board with you guys with the hand stuff. I think my other thing is just to have a championship team in this day and age, you have to have a lot of spacing. And so, you know, to me, it's like if you put Kobe Bryant on a championship caliber team in today's game with the spacing that he has today compared to no disrespect to these guys because they were great players, especially for what you needed to win a championship in like 2009, 2010, but different spacing compared to like Derek Fisher, Metal World Peace, Pau Gasol and Andrew Bynum. Like, and again, those guys were all really good players that played huge parts of winning a championship, but Kobe Bryant, not like, defenses wouldn't be able to completely suffocate him like they did in those times. Like there's a reason Kobe Bryant shot low forties and we considered it amazing. It's because of the coverages he was seeing. For sure. <laughs> you, you could maybe throw those coverages at him if you wanted to, but in today's game, if he was on a championship caliber team, that's at the risk of him being able to see the floor and have the spacing that, that, that superstars have today. For sure. So that That's a thing for me. Why? I don't know if it necessarily would have translated in the numbers. Maybe it would because of pace to an extent. But I definitely think from an efficiency standpoint, you would have seen improvement if he played in today's game. I would love to see what some of the defenders would do when they go up to try to blitz Kobe now. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, it's not, you know, like Joel kind of talked about it earlier, like his playmaking was underrated. And, like, part of, part of playmaking is not necessarily just passing. It's also, like – what can you do to a defense to be able to create openings? And Kobe was really good at splitting like doubles, and yeah. so because he was getting doubled so much, so he had to figure some things out. Sure, yeah. And I think that was kind of underrated was how good he was at splitting doubles. And so that would, Tommy, you're exactly right. Like that would be very interesting to see him like getting blitzed very high up top because he was so good at splitting doubles and like creating a five on three advantage with two behind you, opposed to hitting a short roller and playing four on three. It, w it would be interesting. 
listen, you see some of these these dunks now. Oh my goodness! I just imagine what Kobe would do. Oh man. Well, yeah. to me, it's, it'd be interesting, too, just because the approach on the offensive side of the ball is different now. Like I said, like, people call Kobe a ball hog and a jack because he was, you know, taking, you know, 20, 30 shots a game, and that was kind of in an era where that wasn't necessarily the norm. Now it's like some of these guys, it, 20 shots, is a that's a down night as far as shot attempts. So just even that kind of mindset, uh, you know, but I, I agree with the, with the point that you made, Kyle, with just uh, – you know, the potential for his efficiency to come up because of the spacing of the floor, because of, you know, kind of the difference in style and, um, you know, just being able to operate in space with his playmaking ability, playmaking ability and shot making ability. I think both of those definitely uh, go up, but it, it'd be interesting to see for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I hate it because he was just outside of when, of when all that really kicked in. You know, it's not like if we have this conversation about Jordan where he was, you know, you know, almost 20 years before it. Kobe Bryant was quite literally two or three years away from, yep. from like, this style of play. Yeah. <laughs> Caught the very beginning of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's unfortunate. But, you know, glad we could talk about Kobe. Glad we could finally talk about Kobe on this podcast. He's somebody who deserves his own time on, on a, something that's NBA-oriented. So really glad we were able to talk about that. But we obviously have, like we've hinted at a few times, the biggest series that always matters the most every single year is going on right now, obviously, and uh, the finals. And we're tied 2-2 right now um, after a monster Steph Curry performance in game four. And um, – you know, uh, each team has won a road game so far. Um, the two out of three left will be in San Francisco in the Warriors' favor with home court advantage. They got home court back by winning game four. Um, you know, first I want, just want to talk about Steph's brilliance in this series. You know, I just want to start it out. You know, the guy's averaging 34 points, six rebounds, and three assists in the series right now through four games. His shooting splits are 50% from the field. 49% from three on just under 13 three-point attempts a night. And he's also shooting 86% from the free throw line. Um, you know, I personally think Steph Curry has been able to break Boston's defense in a way that nobody else has to this point. And I know what people are – some people will say imme immediately. Giannis was averaging like 34 in the series. Jimmy Butler had two 40-point games and a 36-point closeout game. But you can't just look at the number to it because, to me, they did kind of neutralize Gian – no, I don't want to say neutralize. That's a bad word because he because he was he still played really well against them. But they had a map for Giannis. You know, although, although he did great, they held him way below his efficiency that he's used to. And they just got to a point where, like, they knew it was coming. It was just, is he going to be so good to a certain extent where he's going to, you know, make it or not? or make the right play or not. With Jimmy, it, it can't go under the rug that the dude had three bad games. I mean, I know one, he got hurt and had to sit the second half, but you can't just sweep those under the rug. He was sure. yeah. He was great for the uh, for, for three games and, and good for another game, but you can't just sweep it under the rug, you know, two and a half bad games. And then, but Steph, in my opinion, and, you know, we'll see. We still have potentially three games left. But it's like when he has the ball – 
And, you know, obviously you see this with almost any team that, that plays against him. But especially with this defense as good as Boston is, they almost just look lost when he when he kind of gets going with the ball. It's like they're on their heels in the sense that even with their game plan, it's like they're confused. Obviously, Boston's been running a lot of drop with Rob and Al Horford. And it's like even whenever they run drop, they know it's the right thing to do, but they're like, oh, my gosh, like, what do I do right now? Like, they're just, like, frozen. And so I just think from that point of view, he's been able to kind of break this defense in a way that nobody else has. Uh, he's per synergy stats. He is averaging over a point per possession on any play type you can imagine. So whether that's coming off a screen, using a ball screen and a PNR, an ISO, uh, in transition, literally anything you can think of, everything is over a point per possession. I don't know if people that are listening to this podcast do numbers like that a lot, but that is literal insanity. And, and so uh, – you know, I just wanted to point all that out. You know, what have you guys made of Steph so far through four games? Well, me, uh, first. Yeah. Oh, go, go you ahead. Got you got it. Okay. So, yeah, Steph has been – like, you can tell he wants it so bad because, I mean, just as good as he's been offensively, he's been really good defensively. Like, I think this is the best – defense Steph has ever played in his career, whether it's getting switched on to Tatum or getting or Marcus Smart in the post. Um, he's just hustling everywhere, and you're, you, like, you can just tell that this Steph is, has a different mindset this year. Yeah, like, no, I was going to say, first off, I'm all for it because uh, I'm a big Steph fan, always have been. Uh, I just appreciate, what one, just who he, has a, who he is as a person, but, two, like, I mean, generational talent, you know, you hear it all the time, you know, change the game forever. You can make an argument, you know, if that's a good thing, bad thing. But to me, it doesn't matter because he's perfected what works for him. And it's literally had, you know, an impact on the game uh, that we know because basketball is completely different now than it was even when I was younger and I'm not that old. So uh, I just think it's crazy that, you know, when they – you know, we're making those runs in the early 2000s and, and won those three titles. Like, obviously, they won the one title without KD. And then KD gets there, and people just act like Steph went by the wayside. Like, okay, he had the one bad finals performance. Like, okay. But that second year, like we talked about earlier, his numbers were good. enough. Like, he was on pace to win that finals MVP. Had one bad game, and KD was just so brilliant that, I mean, he got overshadowed. So, I think that gets overlooked. Um, obviously, the 73 and 9, like people would just forget like that happened because obviously they blew it through one lead. But 73 games is insane. Like, I don't care what anybody says. Obviously, back to back MVP, only unanimous MVP, uh, you know, in NBA history. And like, it was crazy. I thought people were like going insane the year two years ago after Katie left when Steph broke his hand and was out the whole year. People were acting like Steph oh, yeah. was like washed up and done for. I'm like, guys, like, and I was telling my friends this, the thing you guys don't understand is like, it's different than a guy that's like 6'9 and crazy athletic and just gets old. Like when athleticism goes away, you have to kind of change your game pretty drastically to, to stay relevant. That shooting stroke is not going anywhere. Like, I mean, Steph is not the most athletic guy in the world, but just the way he plays, uh, his handling ability, his shooting ability, that's not going anywhere. So it to me, it's validating because 
I was like, the fact that y'all are writing stuff off is crazy. And I think he's showing everybody now that like, I'm not, I haven't gone anywhere. Like I've still got it. And obviously you can tell and just his frustration is coming out as far as like just the slander. He's like, I'm over all this. I'm about to show you guys. Like y'all want me to get a finals MVP? All right, cool. Watch this. And like, I love it and I'm all for it. And I think it's been a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. Uh, and I also think that um, I think you're exactly right on the point about like Steph, like with the uh, frustration, like, because you can see it. Like, I, I swear it's more emotion out of the guy than I've ever seen. Like Tommy kind of got on too. Like, it, obviously he always shows emotion. He always is playing hard. Like he wants it every year, but it's like, Tommy's right. Like there it is like, there's like an extra want for it. For sure. So, you know, he's been amazing. You know, I also want to talk about Jason Tatum because he's had the struggle shooting. Now, I do want to say I don't think Jason Tatum has had anywhere close to, to what I would call a bad series. I just think he's struggled to shoot the ball specifically from two. Now, I mean, when you look at it, Tatum is shooting 45% from three on eight threes a night. And then – He's also in the finals right now. He's averaging 22 points, eight assists, and seven rebounds. He's been elite defensively. Like, you kind of have to know. We've talked about it on this podcast before. Defense is one of those things that for a lot of the times, unless it's on ball, you really just kind of have to know what you're watching to judge it. And this dude's been awesome. And, you know, he's, he's also been as good of a facilitator as you could ask, being a creator. Obviously, you know, some unnecessary turnovers at times. But – being such a good creator for this team as well. You know, in the playoffs right now in general, Jason Tatum is in the 100th percentile in assist percentage. And what assist, what assist percent – that's per clean the glass, shout out, clean the glass. But what assist percentage is, is it's how many points of your – so how many, like, shots that your team's made came off of an assist from you. And Jason Tatum is at 26.4% in these playoffs. So over a quarter of their shots made come from a Jason Tatum assist. Um, you know, also, uh, you know, he really like like I said, like although I think he's had a good series, not a great series because of the struggle shooting from two. Um, I think there's a few things that probably come into it. One is one is his shoulder. Kenny Beecham said it. I really do think Jason Tatum probably does have a torn labrum right now, and I think like. I think some people might think like, oh, well, why is he shooting so well from three then? It's kind of one of those things where like I've never dealt with a shoulder injury, but like honestly, if you're shooting from deeper, it might actually kind of benefit you more because you're like you're kind of just like putting more into it, whereas like it's more of a finesse thing from closer in because it's not as much strength being involved. And so like the shoulder could really mess with you more in there. I don't know if that makes sense to people or not, but like to me it does in the sense of being able to – like have the finesse that he does inside the three-point line. But I also think he's just kind of settling too much for like the long twos. And that's something that's not been a huge issue for him this season overall. And uh, trying to draw too much contact sometimes. Uh, you know, I really don't think Tatum has one of the greatest whistles in the NBA. But, you know, forget that. Like that's not a huge factor. It's like to me it's, you know, I don't care if you have a good whistle or not. You never should be playing just for the foul. And I think he's trying a little too much of that in this series right now. You guys? 
Yeah, no, I, I think Tatum's been amazing. I mean, obviously, probably not the most efficient, uh, you know, uh, I guess, series of his career overall. But, I mean, I think his numbers still speak for himself. Like, I think, uh, I mean, like you said, defensively, he's been unreal. I think he's done a good job both on the ball and off the ball. Like, he's actually, I think, an underrated defender and a, I think a very underrated playmaker. I think he's done a great job of creating not only for himself but for his teammates. Um, you know, I, I think he I think he's been able to kind of overcome some of that uh, lack of efficiency with some of his, you know, attacks to the basket and his shot making ability is like unreal. Like his skill level is crazy. But I think I think two other people that don't get enough love on Boston right now. I know we're talking about Tatum is Jalen Brown has had an amazing series. Honestly, I made the argument to one of my boys the other day. I was like, if Boston wins this series, Jalen Brown might be the MVP. If you just look at like consistent now, obviously he's turned the ball over so a little bit. <laughs> that now you can make that argument, but just from a consistency standpoint, and I think he's been a little—I don't know the numbers—but he has been a little more efficient than Tatum. Uh, I think Tatum is obviously the superstar, the higher ceiling, all that. But Tate, I mean, but Jalen Brown has bailed them out on you know sometimes with Tatum and struggle. But man, Robert Williams, oh my gosh! Like you talk about you know paint protector. Um, just all the little things, you know, shot blocker. I was saying, man, Danny Ainge and those guys are geniuses because think about it. A year ago, Robert Williams was like third man on the totem pole. Mm-hmm. They traded in his cancer. Um, who, who was the other big they had? Uh, they had two bigs in front of Tice, Tice was there and then left yeah. the offseason and then they got him back. Yeah, they traded Tice, which elevated Robert Williams up and then got Tice back. And just kind of that foresight to see – you know, this guy, you know, has it, you know, let's move these guys out of the way so he can kind of thrive. I mean, he's been huge for them and obviously allowed Horford to play the four, which is probably his natural position anyway. But um, I don't think those two guys get enough love, but Tatum is obviously Tatum. He's amazing. (laughs) Tommy, what have you kind of thought about Tatum's struggle shooting the ball? Yeah. um, I mean, Jason Tatum's an amazing player. And so I'm going to look at, this in a different sense like I'm gonna look at look at it like he would look at it um yeah he's 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 going through a little bit of a slump but he's going through more of that slump in in the clutch like in the fourth quarter like it's not it's not what Jason Tatum has done these this playoff series like you saw it happen like once in 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 the Milwaukee series but uh he just has I mean has to be better in the in the clutch in the fourth quarter and the, those crunch time moments when you're down seven and you're, and the Warriors go on a run. Now, now part he just of has that, to be better in those moments, but part of that, I, I think he's great. And there's, it's the best of three series now. So. Yeah. Part of that, I do feel bad for Tatum because as good of a playmaker as he is, he typically will start with the ball in his hands in possessions for Boston. And, you know, especially in game four, late in the game, I mean, the guy would go to make a play, whether it was off a ball screen or kind of attacking with space or whether it was some kind of just quick hitter. Like, once he makes the first pass in game four, he wasn't getting it back. And it wasn't like it was something where Golden State wasn't letting him get it back. It was like some very poor decisions from all of – from Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart and – a few poor decisions from Horford as well. Um, you know, you can't go away from your best player and you can't just not give him the ball. Like 
that's something where if he's getting it out early and making plays, he has to touch the ball again. So I, I think that's part of it when it comes to the clutch time stuff is the decision-making from the others because he's making the right play first, and then they have to continue to do the right play going forward in the possession. Mm-hmm. And, like, I mean, he's the, he's the unsaid leader of this team, so, like, sometimes you just got to say, give me the ball. Now I, like, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, we saw we see all the greats do that, and he's going to be a great. He's going to learn. Yeah. Um, you know, I just wanted to go over some things that you guys have worked – that you think have worked for both teams and maybe some stuff that you think hasn't worked or needs to be just – or if it, if it still hasn't been taken out of the game plan, what should be taken out. Um, some things that have worked well, and I just want to go over real quick, is for Boston, I really liked – obviously they're going to start with two bigs, and there's definitely times where that should happen. But especially late in games, I'm big on the one big lineup. Uh, and going like the smaller with Derek White in, or even Grant Williams. Grant Williams hadn't been very good in the series overall, but uh, had a good game three. Um, so maybe if he can give you some minutes there, but especially with Derek White being really good. Uh, for me, it's, it's also just for Boston getting downhill early in the shot clock. You know, they have a lot of possessions because they don't have a traditional point guard. And, you know, you have your pros and your cons with it. We've talked about it before, but. So they're, they're not going to have some guy that – Tatum's done a very good job improving in this area, but they're not going to have a guy that's going to constantly be running stuff or whatever that a traditional point guard would. So for them, they do have a lot of possessions where it does get kind of dry and they end up just kind of having like an isolation out really high because they back it up to try to be able to create something. And those possessions just don't get them anywhere more often than not. So I think getting downhill early and creating something, Tatum does a great job of it. Maybe some more of that from Brown. When Brown does it, it's great, but it's like when he does it. Um, and then also, you know, it's 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 obvious crashing the offensive glass, something that they're great at, but they have to continue to do it because they have such an advantage. And as well, man, I, like I'm, I'm 100% with you, what you said earlier, Tommy, like Steph has been so much more improved defensively. But when they've attacked both him and Poole, like they've seen so much success out of it. And I feel like there's so many times where they're just letting those guys off the hook. Like you have to hammer home. If they're not going to do what they did against Luka Doncic or just blitz you, and again, what they did against Luka was just the hard hedging and recover. If they're not going to either hedge and recover or blitz, you have to make them pay, and they're not doing it enough. So I feel like they have to do it more. I mean, in game three, they murdered them with it, and they got they got a lot of success out of it, especially with Jordan Poole in game one. you got to continue to hunt those guys. What have been some things that uh, you guys maybe think have worked for Boston and that they need to go towards more often? Yeah, I mean, I, I think when Boston has taken advantage of it, I mean, it's, it's clear. Like, anybody with two eyes can see they're the more athletic team and they're the bigger team. And I think uh, when they've taken advantage of that, you know, like you said, when when Steph and Jordan Poole get switched off on the Tatums and Jalen Browns of the world and they attack those guys, they have success. But when they settle for jumpers and don't, I think that's when you play in the Golden State's uh, hands because, A, they're not very deep, and, two, they're not very big. And I think that's two things that Boston has been a little inconsistent with. And uh, just, I mean, down low, I mean, just the activity of, you know, Robert Williams, Al Horford, you know, um, Grant Williams, like those guys, like when they crash the glass, especially Robert Williams, like when they make that an agenda and really crash the glass and, you know, dominate that side of the ball, those are the 
you know, the two wins that they have was a lot of them because of that, because they're creating extra possessions, you know, for themselves, for their teammates. You know, you get a lot of kick-out threes on offensive rebounds. And obviously, Derek White and those guys are knocking down threes. So um, I just think they've been a little inconsistent with what they've done well. But I think they've shown that when they take advantage of the advantages that they have, that's when they give Golden State fits. Yeah, that's a really good. That's a really good point. Um, and th there are so many like times where they have mismatches on the court when the Warriors are playing that small ball, and you got to rob Rob and Al on the court. Uh, you got to take advantage of those situations and take advantage of the size. Um, and uh, something that else that they have to do is they have to like keep getting Jalen Brown Brown the ball in big time situations. He's been playing well. He's been playing like the Finals MVP. So they just need to let him let him loose. I would I would agree to an extent on that just because of some of his decision making throughout the games. I think it's it is like we've talked about it before. Like it's such an experience with Jalen Brown because you either have what looks like like a legit top fifteen, top eighteen type player in the league, or you have a guy that you're like. Okay, yeah, he does score twenty a game, but it also comes with like, okay, what's your IQ here? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, so I like, I do think the ball has to stay in Tatum's hands more. But I, yeah. but I, I now if now if right, yeah, I, I'll ref I'll rephrase it a little bit. It's like those those spurs where he he gets going. Yes. So I mean, I think I think you know I'm totally with you on that in the sense that like. Brown, when he's making good decisions, is incredible. Yes, it should be in his hands more. But, like, he has to be able to make those good decisions. Um, yeah, for a full game. Yeah, on the opposite side for Golden State, I think some stuff that, it's, that has really worked. I think the most noticeable thing to me that you kind of saw early on in the series is that, you know, the Warriors are known for, like, all this crazy movement and stuff, and they have still done it to some, like, to some degree. But they've really just reverted to a lot of step pick and roll. And I don't blame them because that's what's giving Boston the most fits. And so, you know, just like Steph's running, like I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's like a ridiculous amount of pick and rolls compared to like other times in his career. And I'm with it, like keep doing it. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm loving that for Golden State. Uh, I want to see more Kevon Looney and more Gary Payton. Um, you know, Looney, I think, I didn't understand why Steve Kerr didn't start him in game four, and I don't, honestly don't think after the first few minutes Steve Kerr understood why he didn't start Kevon Looney. Now, no hate to Steve Kerr. He ended up coaching one of the best games I've seen from him in that game four. But that decision at the beginning was like, what are you doing, man? But, um, you know, Looney's been great where he's been in. I think he needs more minutes. And, and the thing for Gary Payton with me is, you know, I didn't know where he would maybe fall in this series if he was healthy. I thought it could hurt because he is somewhat of like an offensive liability, just knowing like his skill set and what he's able to do. But I think like just the way he's moving and the way he crashes the glass, even though he's small and like the cuts he makes and also on the defensive end, he does give up size to Tatum and Brown. But to this point, they've not hit shots enough in that mid-range area over him where it's hurting you. So it's almost like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it in that sense. Like, don't overthink it if they're not hitting shots over him, you know? And so I really like those minutes from those two guys. And just continuing to push and transition any chance they get. They're as good as it gets. 
they're they're the best team in the league in transition. It's not as good as it gets. They're the best team in transition. And, you know, being able to create turnovers, you get long rebounds, or even if it's unforced turnovers, whatever, like they got to keep pushing it. Or even on made baskets, get it out and go. Like that's – they're as effective as anything offensively within their system. Even if it's not advantage basketball, just a fast-paced game, that's where they thrive. So I think they got to continue to do that. Um, what is it for you guys that you think has worked well for Golden State or that they should be doing more? I agree with you because I didn't quite understand the uh, the Kevon Looney benching either, um, especially the way that Draymond has been dumb. And I love Draymond Green, but Robert Williams has dominated him on the glass mm-hmm. just because he's too small. Like, I mean, that just is what it is. Yeah. Um, and Kevon Looney has been amazing in this series. And if they go on to win it, he'll be a big part of that. Um, so I didn't quite understand that, but, um, you know, obviously he's been a great bright spot because honestly, when the news came out that Wiseman wasn't going to come back, that was interesting to me because I was like, well, you know, if they face one of the teams in the West that has a big, who is going to be the one to, you know, guard him? Cause I mean, Draymond can do it with heart and, you know, activity and whatever, but Draymond's like six, six. So yeah. I mean, he can only do so much. Um, and I think Looney has stepped up big and kind of, uh, you know, been that anchor, you know, for them at times, you know, creating, you know, second and third shot opportunities with his activity and just, uh, you know, obviously making garbage bus- buckets around the basket. But, I mean, I think obviously, like you said, like the, the fast break game, like that's the advantage that they have. Like, obviously Boston's bigger, but, I mean, if you're going to go small ball, you have to get out and run. And I think when Golden State has done that, I mean, they sh- they've shown, you know, throughout – you know, recent history that they're one of the best teams to ever do it when they get out and run. Um, I just think uh, it's it's tough with some of the lineups that they have in there because of what they have to counter. Because when you have Horford and Williams in there at the same time, you almost have to have two bigs in there. But from a spacing standpoint, that has not helped Golden State at all because Draymond's shot is broke and Looney can't shoot either. So it's like, Okay, do we? It's it's like a chess match. It's like okay, do we maybe give up an offensive rebound or two, you know, to give us a chance to get up and down and run and try to beat these bigs down the floor, or do we put our two bigs in and try to counter some of that and uh, you know keep them off the offensive boards and you know that's what Steve Kerr gets paid millions of dollars to make those decisions. Um, you know, obviously the series is two two. I definitely agree with you with the Gary Payton um, uh, mention that you made because. I think of all of them, he is the one guy, like even the what he gives up in size, I think he's athletic enough and gritty enough to, you know, switch off and guard, you know, some of the quicker, more athletic players that the Steph Curry's and Jordan Poole's somewhat struggle with at times um, because Gary Payton has proven like he is, you know, arguably one of their better perimeter defenders, um, you know, on the team. So I think uh, just more minutes for him. Um, and I think just – the Draymond thing has been interesting, too, because, I mean, you guys remember, like, Draymond used to knock down open threes, so I don't yeah. really know, like, what happened. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, if he can just – I mean, and I don't even think it has to be from three, but if he can just score at all, um, I think that definitely helps because it, it's one of those things that I was telling one of my friends the other day, like, it's almost a win for Boston either way, Draymond shooting the ball. If he's shooting the ball and missing it, Great, okay, because that's basically a turnover. 
if he's shooting the ball and making it, that's also great because that's fewer threes that Steph and Clay are throwing up. So it's just like, I mean, offensively, it's kind of that give or take. But, I mean, Golden State needs Draymond to at least be a threat because if not, I can just load up on, you know, Steph and Wiggins and Clay. And I, obviously, that's easier said than done, but I can load up on those guys and kind of scheme better. But um, anything offensively they could get out of Draymond would be nice. Yep. And yeah, bouncing off that Gary Payton uh, point, like, yeah, he's not a, like a big scorer in the game, but he shuts down some of Boston's space creators. And um, he also like, there's sometimes where he just cuts where no other player would really cut. And it creates um, easy layups and dunks as well. And he, I, I he's, also, yeah. He is underrated as a cutter. Like, yeah. like just he knows what to do in that system. He knows how to play. He knows how to play off of Steph specifically. And like you can't like underrate that because that's yeah. important. Not not at all. Not at all. And um he's like he's also like really good in the open floor. He to is. me. He's a good decision maker on both yeah. ends. Um, I was gonna say. Else. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, you, you, you go, you go. Cause I oh no, I was gonna say. Uh, shout out to a guy who I think is getting overlooked way too much is Andrew Wiggins. Like, oh yeah, I mean, how great has oh, he yeah. been? I mean, honestly, you take Wiggins off of the Warriors right now, like we don't know what this series. Steph has been amazing, so I'm not taking away from him. But I mean, even in that game where Steph had 43, Wiggins had 17 and 16, and that didn't get brought up like at all. And I think that's crazy because I think, obviously, he is an athletic player. I think he is a very underrated defender. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's guarding a lot of these guys. I'm sorry to cut you off. I'm sorry, but I really want to here. Just just to put this point out there, Wiggins on Tatum and Brown specifically has given little to nothing. Yes. Yes. Like, so, obviously, before Clay's injury – Clay was the one guarding, you know, the other team's best, you know, perimeter offensive player. Now, since his injury, he does that some, but I mean, it's going to take time. I mean, we don't, I, he may not ever get back to that elite defensive status that he was, but Wiggins has taken over that role. And I don't think he gets enough love for that. Like, obviously, he was voted an all star starter, and people thought that was crazy, this and that. And I mean, you might be able to make an argument that that was right, but I'm like, dude, you take Wiggins off the Warriors right now. I, I mean, I don't know what this series looks like. It's so I think he's definitely not getting enough enough love on either side of the ball. Yeah, uh, you know, you, you said it, but I mean take like Steph had forty three and that's the obvious that's the obvious first reason to their game four win, but Andrew Wiggins was nearly as important his performance in game four. Yeah, he was he was great. He's just been such um, a great player for them all playoffs and even in this series specifically to this point. I mean he I you know, I, I've not wanted to come out and say it, but it's been in my head like the entire season he has been clear cut number two on this team. Agreed. When so uh two years ago in that season that I mentioned when Golden State, you know, had the injury issue, Steph broke his hand, uh Clay obviously went down in the offseason, they traded for D'Angelo Russell, all that. When Golden State made the trade and traded uh, D'Angelo Russell for Andrew Wiggins, I told my friends, I said, that trade is going to go under the radar and it should. I said, when the Warriors get back healthy, that's going to be one of the more, like, underrated trades of, like, recent history. That's going to be huge for them. 
And the reason why I said that was the hype coming around Andrew Wiggins coming out of Kansas, I think was unfair because people were saying he's the next Kobe and this and that. That's not fair to anybody. <laughs> so, I mean, let's start there. And then obviously he starts off getting traded for Kevin Love in the Cleveland and uh, Minnesota trade. Yeah, I, I had even had only played like a few summer league games and boom. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So traded out off the bat. I think the expectations were too high. But Wiggins as a second and third option, money. Like, and not to mention now, I didn't know he was this great of a defender. I mean, he's a very good perimeter defender, but he fits Golden State perfectly because he can play the small ball four. Like the dude is six, six, eight, six, nine. So in that system of running gun, get up and down, stretch the floor. He fits that. And not to mention, he's rebounding at that high of a clip. Like, he fits that system to a T. So, it's crazy to me that that move doesn't get um, enough love as it should. I think that's another mastermind move. If, you know, you look at it now at the Warriors front office, but Andrew Wiggins has been huge for that team. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I think what you were saying about, like, you know, you're, you're not the only one that didn't know that Andrew Wiggins was, like, this good defender. And I think part of it is, like, he's probably making a lot of people eat some words that they had about his IQ as a player. And a lot of that is like, you know, no hate on Minnesota. We just talked on our last podcast or two podcasts ago, how great of a move it is that they're having Tim Connolly come in and have the right direction. They're making moves that are going in the right direction. Definitely on the come up as an organization, but where they were at whenever they drafted Andrew Wiggins, you can't just, you can't just not acknowledge what it's like for a guy to get drafted into a poorly ran organization. For sure. And, you know, right now is just showing – and you also can't be just anybody and and succeed in the Warrior system. I mean, we just saw Kelly Oubre Jr. last year who kind of had the same physical tools as Andrew Wiggins, maybe not to the degree that Wiggins does, but this athletic swing man that's long and, like, has the ability to shoot it but not known to be some knockdown shooter. But, it like, it matters your smarts. And Andrew Wiggins is proving I can play on both sides of the ball because I do have the IQ for that as a player while having the physical tools to be able to succeed that well. So, yeah, that definitely can't go under mine. Um, but also moving forward, you know, some things that maybe aren't working for both teams or, you know, maybe it's to their fault if they're running it or not, but just aren't working well or they should get out of it. Uh, for Boston, for me, I'm going to start out with – Please get out of drop coverage. Um, uh, to me, you can stop there. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, I get it. I really do. Like, from somebody who, like, tries to analyze this kind of stuff in, like, a meaningful way, I get it. Like, you you want Robert Williams and Al Horford closer to the rim. And, like, you don't want to pull the, – the, the thought process with drop coverage is you, you don't pull that – because if you switch it, immediately that guy's not going to be around the rim. Okay, and obviously I think for Boston, they've done a smart decision not doing this. Teams have learned in the past, don't blitz Steph Curry, because when you blitz Steph Curry, it turns into a short roll, turns into advantage basketball, and they they have guys that are all high IQ, and you're going to get burned off that. And so, like, you know, I'll get into how that's played into Draymond here in a minute, but, like, they've been smart with that, but that leaves them options. Do you hedge and recover? Do you play drop? Do you switch? Well, I get whether or not why they're not hedging and recover. That's a terrible idea against Steph Curry. I don't have to go into that. Okay. They don't want to switch it because they don't want those guys away from the rim. But I think you kind of have to at this point. And I like I don't think that anyone outside of Steph Curry, Wiggins for sure, but I mean, 
in terms of how often is he really going to get it with them pulled away from the rim if it's late in the shot clock. You don't have just like three or four guys to worry about penetrating the rim just because Rob or Al switch on to Steph Curry. And so, you know, I think it, at, you at least got to try it. So I'm saying just get out of drop. Uh, I meant to mention this earlier, off of pick and rolls in general, Steph Curry is at 1.3 points per possession on the series, which is otherworldly. But on drop coverage, I think in like two of the games or whatever, or maybe it's all four. I don't remember. Kevin O'Connor, I think, tweeted about it, or maybe it was Zach Lowe. Like, it's like 1.6 points per possession. And that's like – that should just tell you, get out of it. <laughs> no, he's, he's torching it pretty good. So, that um, – I understand Rob's knee, but I think if there's any way you could play the guy even three or four more minutes, do it. And, I mean, I get it. Maybe they can't. Like, maybe they physically can't. But if there's any way to have that dude on the floor more, do it. Um, I – Maybe it was because of a minutes thing because he had knee surgery not even, I don't know, a month ago. But, like, there were times late in game four where they're running one big, and I would have personally preferred Rob to be out there instead of Al Horford. Um, but, you know, those are those very tough decisions. Um, and then the obvious, they have to be smarter with the ball. This team, when they, you know, Windhorse and Zach Lowe have preached it because they've been doing joint pods together. When this team uh, has like 15 or 16 turnovers or more, they have a terrible record in the playoffs. When they have like less than 15 turnovers, they have like one loss. Like it, re- and it's a lot of unforced. Like it comes down to they just have to play smart. Like it's not, it's not like, and Golden State's defense is great, but it's not like a lot of these turnovers come from Golden State just being up in them and forcing them. It's like their poor decision making. So, they just have to put games together where they aren't just throwing the ball away. What do you guys think some stuff for Boston that they need to fix or go away from? I mean, the drop. I mean, and and I know it's easy for us to say because we're on the sideline and we're not oh, yeah. you know, in that seat or whatever. And I know there's probably pages of analytics that, you know, backs up that move. But, like, I mean, you know, you mentioned the blitz. Like, to me, that's no different. Like, if you're dropping on Steph and if you're a big and you're still giving him that space, that ball is going up. So, to me, like, it's the same thought process. Um, And I'm just like, as a coach, I think there comes a point because you do stick to your guns on a lot of things that you, you know, believe in, you think are going to work, this and that. But if you keep getting torched by something over and over again, there comes a point to where it's like, okay, Let's switch this up a possession or two and just see what happens just to maybe give a different look or something along those lines. And uh, I give them credit. They've stuck to their guns. But, I mean, Steph clearly is having a field day with the drop coverage, and I just don't understand it, I guess, from the the standpoint of, okay, give a different look. I'm not saying go away from it altogether, but maybe mix it up more. That I guess that's just my thought process on it. Yeah, um, you know, I, I like what you said because we're two guys that potentially – or you're in coaching and me potentially wanting to get into coaching. It's like, you know, like there are times where a guy's going to stick with it. And I will say to this point in the playoffs, because it's Udoka's first playoffs, he's proven that if he's going to make all kinds of adjustments. I think this is the first time in these playoffs where I've seen him maybe get a little stubborn. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he tries something in game five and then it's it's almost like he kind of – 
makes a point without even having to say anything. Hey, that's why I was in drop coverage. Yeah. But like, I will say this is the one time in these playoffs where I can actually say Udoka's not going away from something if it's not working. No, completely agree. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go. Oh, you're just saying you agree? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tommy, what do you think? Some stuff for Boston. Yeah, I mean, you you hit the nail right on the head with the the they the stupid turnovers, um, and I think that I mean, it's kind of it's kind of hard. So I'm gonna say something that they should like move forward to that they're not doing. You know, because we went we last point we made was what they what they're doing good, but this is something they're not doing at all, and. Um, this is making making smarter like making smarter decisions like when you're hunting. So like if you have Bealicia on you, you just need to realize that's a mismatch. Like if you're Jason Tatum. Yes, um, I, I know. I mean, I, I want you to keep going. Tatum is completely overthinking it whenever Bealicia has has been switched on him. I think I saw something that was like when Bealicia is on him in this series, he's over four and has five turnovers. Like that's just that's not Bealicia locking him up. That is Tatum – and, I mean, like, no hate. Obviously, Bielitsa's done a solid job. He can't just completely take away the credit from him. But that that is a complete mismatch. That is Jason Tatum completely overthinking having a mismatch. You're exactly right. Keep going. Yeah. Um, and then, I, I mean, I guess just, like, bouncing, bouncing off of that, um, something that they could, I mean, do more of is – I mean, and they've cut back on it a little bit is cutting Grant Williams' minutes. Yeah, I'll, I'll admit, you know, and I like him. I think he's a great role player. Three of the four games in this series, he's done basically nothing. Yeah, and, like, I don't know if if, if uh, Draymond's in his head or something like that, but, like, he's not playing well. And, I mean, we've seen his minutes get cut last game, so we'll see if they continue moving forward with that or what, what they do. Yeah, no, I agree. I was going to say, the guy I think on Boston that I, I feel like should be getting more minutes, especially with Grant Williams struggling, is Daniel Tice. Because to really? me, as a, as a high-energy guy, and to me, like, I just think be, because of what he brings to the table as far as being able to crash the glass, you know, not the most athletic in the world, but athletic enough to kind of mix some things up. I'm like, if Grant Williams isn't going to get it done, I think he's the one that should take some of those uh minutes that's just you know my thought i could be yeah. completely off on that but it'd be interesting to see like if he got a couple a few more minutes you know what he might be able to do with it i'm definitely yeah and like like any like really any at all because I, I don't think he's gotten in the last two games and like you just got to put him in there just just to see what what happens see if you get a better result See, I, I'm going to, like, and it's, it's like, no disrespect. Like, I'm going to disagree there because I think I think Tice is, like, begging to get kind of, like, cooked by, like, this Golden State offense. And, I mean, you kind of saw it against Miami. Like, there is – like, there's definitely a reason he's not been playing. I'm not going to, like, disagree with you guys, like, in that sense of, like, hey, you got to try something sometimes. But I would almost go towards just cutting the rotation down opposed to throwing Tice in there. But um, they went down to the the eight man rotation last game. Yeah, I, I mean, I you just got to keep rolling with Grant. I mean, even I just think it's like if it's if it keeps getting bad, it's just decreased minutes, in my opinion. Or I actually uh, agree with what you said earlier, Kyle. As far as like going to the one big lineup and going small ball, like I mean, Brad Stevens was starting Tatum at the four the last couple years anyway. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, if if Golden State is going to go kind of a more small ball look, and clearly Tatum has proven like 
he can guard oh, yeah. <laughs> anybody on the floor. I think that would be an interesting look to maybe counter and, you know, try to see what happens with that as well. Now, obviously, you take the rebounding away because Tatum isn't the rebounder that a Horford or a Robert Williams is. But, you know, that would be if Grant Williams is going to struggle and, you know, like you say, you don't play Tice. To me, that's the next move that you make is just slide everybody down, put Derek uh, White in there and uh, roll with that lineup. I 100 percent agree with that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, looking at the opposite side with Golden State, uh, for me, it's, you know, and although I don't like his antics, I do like what he brings to the table for Golden State. But in this series, no, it's it's less Draymond. I'm not saying don't – I'm not saying bench him. It's just, like, less Draymond. And uh, can't afford to go small for long spurts. Um, they've been killed doing that sometimes. So I just want to touch on that. But especially with the Draymond point, for me, it's like – I touched on it earlier. They're not blitzing. They're never going to. They have such a good defense, they don't need to blitz. And so where Draymond specializes is Steph Curry getting blitzed because of how much of a threat he is. Draymond short roll creates off-advantage basketball. Well, when Draymond can't create an advantage basketball, he's not going to do much because he's not a, like, one-on-one type guy – or like his everything he gets offensively is going to be because there's more attention on other guys. It's never going to be him breaking down a defense. So like, you know, if if there are nights where Draymond, like most of this series, is giving you little to nothing, you just got to stop playing him, which Steve Kerr did in Game Four, and it proved very successful. I've loved the lineup where it's Steph, GP, Clay. Wiggins and Looney and I want to see more of it and it's like that comes with less Draymond and I think it's okay you have to do what works in a series and we're four games in I think you've seen enough like we're at that point Draymond does need to play he's a good defender like and he does make the like he does make smart passes but like you just if it continues like this you have to decrease the minutes which he did in game four and I wouldn't be surprised if we see going forward what, I, I didn't have a ton, though, for Golden State that I think just isn't working. What about you guys? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of hit on it uh, earlier. I mean, the, the two-big lineup does – I won't say no good for Golden State, but it hurts from a spacing standpoint because, like, I mean, Draymond right now is the one that you can load up off of and, you know, kind of play, you know, scheme against some other guys. Um, you know, I love Draymond. I love what he brings to the table. Is he mouthy? Yes. Is he a little extra? Yes. And he's probably been even more mouthy than normal this series. <laughs> um, but on the flip side of that, like, I do agree to the standpoint of, like, you know, maybe playing less because if, if he's not going to look to score, he's no different than a Ben Simmons right now who is basically just a liability. And but the difference with obviously the six, I'm not comparing those scenarios. No, yeah, but I am saying I get, like I get what you're saying, and I, I would hope that the audience gets to get. Yes, it. Let me explain. If he's not even going to look to score, then that does nothing good from Golden State on the offensive standpoint because I don't even have to guard this dude. Like and he's not that's why I love. That's why I love the lineup I was talking about with GP in there because of his cutting and him being willing to take an occasional corner three, like. And with Wiggins at the four, I think his rebounding and his defense has proved that's okay to do that. And so, like, that's why I love that lineup. But keep going. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, like, it would 
like I said, it, it's one of those, it's a thin line. Like, you want Draymond to knock down the occasional open three, but even that might play into the defense's hands. Because, I mean, Draymond is not a guy that really gets shot happy. But if he starts feeling himself a little bit and you know, not take, taking the three every now and then, well, that's one less than Steph and Clay are taking. So we'll live with that. But I, I agree. I, I think playing Wiggins at the four, especially with uh, – you know, if, if some lineups that Boston is put on the floor, I think Wiggins has proven that. I mean, is he going to bang with the Horford? I mean, you know, maybe, but he's maybe not. But he's athletic enough to at least hold his own, and he's proven he can rebound the heck out of the ball. So, and obviously on the offensive side, that's a huge uh, mismatch. You know, going and going to Sage's favor. Yep, I'm gonna I'm gonna start off by saying that Kyle, um, he came over to my house looked at every single note that I had and took him down to the list because he has me <laughs> shook this podcast. He, I swear. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm uh, for this next one, I'm just going to have to say they have to know when to play, play pool and know when to play Peyton. Um, I mean, and they've done a good job so far. I mean, you, we saw a few or an issue game two and then game three, but um, I think they just need to decide like go with one and then like i mean steve Kerr is a genius so he does a good job anyway so yeah um yeah thank you kyle you have me you have me shook <laughs> you know and we've laughed about this before guys i swear me and tommy make outlines we don't see each other's notes going into the pod so like so like it is funny because there's been times where like I've had that kind of type thing with Tommy or like he has it with me right now. Like, I just think that's funny. Yeah. Like I was about to say, like, it's like everything today. I, <laughs> I've sounded like a bozo. <laughs> no, you haven't. But, <laughs> um, but, you know, I just want to ask final, final thing before we wrap up this pod, what are your guys just quick thoughts going forward? I mean, I said Warriors and six from the beginning. I'll stick to that. Um, you know, it is very likely it could go seven games, but I just think when you got a championship culture like that, generally speaking, if you've been there and done that, especially to the level that they have, I think when it when it comes down to crunch time, I mean, they know how to get it done. Now, I say that to say, I mean, Boston has proven at times, like, you know, they're not far from that either. I mean, they've got the shot-making ability. They've got the, the defense. They've got the rebounding. Like, they've got the pieces as well. Um, I just think, you know, when you, when you got that dynasty sitting over there, that's hungry and been there and done that and been doubted and they're motivated and you got Steph, you know, being more emotional than ever. I, I mean, I, I just think that's a recipe for success. And, um, it's, it's crazy that we're sitting here talking about Steph's, uh, legacy at all, because he's, you know, best shooter that's ever touched the basketball, you know, one of the best to ever do it, but. If the Warriors win uh, this title, to me, there's no other argument that you can ever make against Steph ever. And he'll win the finals MVP. So you can even shut up that argument. Right. And um, so I also had the Warriors in six. And I, I like my pick. And I, I think the series is going amazing. So I would, I'd sacrifice my pick to see seven games. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, for me, just a few things. First off, I did I picked the Celtics in seven from the jump. I'm not going away from it. 
Um, Boston hasn't lost back-to-back games in the playoffs. Golden State also only has one loss at home in these playoffs, which was to Boston in game one. Um, We've seen the teams split at each other's home for the first four games. I think we're going to get that again. I do think we're getting a game seven, regardless of the outcome of who wins. Um, I will say this. I'm not saying that it would be like a good thing, but I do think Boston can like afford to lose game five more than Golden State could. Um, And I only say that because you don't want a closeout game banking on some of those guys like, and we praise him and rightfully so we've not given clay much talk on this pod, but like, and that would be a game six clay, I guess, but you know, that's another conversation for another day, but like, you don't want to bank on a clay right now with this state of clay, a Jordan Poole, a Wiggins, even though he's been great, to have to do again what they just did in an elimination game in the garden. Um, whereas Boston, even if they would be down going – again, you don't want to be in this position at all if you're either team. I've seen Boston win two seven-game series in this playoff run. I've seen Boston be down 3-2 and have a monster performance against against the best player in the league, in my opinion, to go play in a game seven. Like, I think that this team is built for it. I'm not saying the Warriors aren't, but I'm just saying I think more plays into Boston's favor if they were to be in that position than it would Golden State. But um, I do think we're going seven, and I'm going to stick with my pick. So, yeah, uh, Celtics and seven, been pushing the agenda. You guys know Celtics were title pick from the beginning. We're not leaving it, but – been a great series. Couldn't ask for much better in a series. Uh, really looking forward to – obviously, this will be uploaded tomorrow. It, we're recording on uh, Sunday night. Well, it's Monday now. We're past midnight here. But um, uh, this will go up right uh, early before game five. So, hopefully, you guys get to listen to this before game five. But if not, I think the thoughts will be pretty similar on the series. But uh, with that being said, this is the end of episode 14 of the Coast to Coast podcast. Joel. Thank you so much for coming on, man. Really appreciate you, bro. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me. Uh, it was fun, and I enjoyed uh, talking hoops with you guys. Yeah, for sure. But uh, this is the end of Episode 14 of the Coast to Coast Podcast, and we'll be back with you guys later this week with a Memphis Grizzlies assistant coach, Joshua Henderson. So really looking forward to that one. We'll be back to you guys later in the week. See you.